Welcome to the Rebel at Large Adventure Podcast. I'm Drifter. And I'm Gypsy. Talking about ghost towns, graveyards, outlaws, heroes, and ladies of the night. Howdy folks, thanks for joining us today for this bonus episode as we celebrate the repeal of Prohibition. If you don't know what Prohibition is, stick around as we're about to tell you. So Prohibition was known as the Great Experiment or the Noble Experiment. It was a federal dry spell spanning from 1920 to 1933. The 18th Amendment to the Constitution banned the manufacture, transportation, and sell of liquor. It didn't technically ban drinking alcohol, any booze you had on hand prior to the change was grandfathered in, and you could enjoy as much as you had on hand. Several accounts stated that folks bought out entire liquor store inventories, uh, so they had enough on hand, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Um, On January 16th, 1919, prohibition was ratified by the states, and what was known as the Volstead Act officially became effective on the 17th of January, 1920. Boo, right? That's right. Uh, Thus beginning the 13-year dry spell for the United States. But why would this be allowed, one might ask? They might. So the early 1800s, the 20s and 30s specifically, brought with it an increase in religion, which led to an increase of imposed moral standards as well. Temperance groups started forming as churches pushed abstinence from the sin of imbibing. Massachusetts was a leader in forming laws against drinking, passing its first temperance law restricting the sale of spirits to 15 gallons or more in quantity. (laughs) Not the typical run to the liquor store for sure. No. In 1846, Maine was the first to pass a statewide prohibition law, which became more strict in 1851. A handful of other states began passing similar laws by the beginning of the Civil War in 1861. Many of these imposed efforts only lasted a few years, while other areas are still dry to this day. Yeah. Didn't you say you went through some of those states? Yeah, I was coming across the country on the Harley, so I left from Florida, went up the coast, and then crossed over into the Stokoa Valley, which borders North Carolina and Tennessee. I walked into the lodge and asked them where the nearest beer might be, and they said, Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> the other way. Yeah. <laughs> So by the 1900s, temperance societies were in nearly every community nationwide. Women were the biggest pushers of temperance as they considered it destructive to their families. Their fella hanging out at the bar after work, then coming home trashed, which also strained the marriages. Um, During these years, women didn't have much of a presence in the work field. They were basically just hanging out at the house. Um, cooking, making dinner, pies, whatever, doing all the wash, you know, that sort of stuff. And being cooped up all day, uh, then having your partner come home incapable of even having a conversation, that really wouldn't work for me either. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> so by 1906, the Anti-Saloon League, which was founded in 1893, fueled by a reaction to urban growth and the increase of evangelical Protestantism, which considered the saloon culture ungodly and corrupt, led new attacks on the sale of booze. They were supported by a number of factory owners, hoping that a more sober workforce would minimize workplace accidents and increase efficiency. That would kind of make sense, right? Justifiable. Yeah. 
What does it take to be part of the saloon league? We need more saloons instead of bars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now's a good time to bring back Carrie Nation. We mentioned her in our episode of Butte, Montana's Red Light District. Mm -hmm. She was an activist, loud and obnoxious, yet not really considered a productive influence to the temperance movements. Many other organizations didn't want to be tied to her radical and often illegal ways. Right. So Carrie was born in 1846. Her folks were poor. Her mom was nuts. And she really wasn't a healthy child. She got herself an education and a teaching certificate. Um, at the age of 21, she married a young doctor. However, left him a few months later due to his drinking problem. Tisk tisk. <laughs> This may be what started her and her movement. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure it helped inspire it. <laughs> uh, ten years later, she married Mr. David Nation. He was a lawyer, journalist, and a minister. Mm -hmm. Right up her alley. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, he actually left her after being married for 23 years on grounds of desertion. 24 years. Yes, yeah, sorry, 24 years. Um, he probably wished it was 23. <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> uh, Carrie entered the temperance movement in 1890, not agreeing with the federal laws that might impact the prohibition laws of Kansas, which is where she was residing at the time. Yeah, so she got the bright idea that if a saloon is operating illegally, it wouldn't be illegal for her to go about wrecking these joints. Makes sense. <laughs> yeah, so she started bar hopping, singing and praying to all the sinners, quoting the Bible, then quickly proceeding to tear up these places with a hatchet. <laughs> she was arrested on multiple occasions. However, she had some cash from fees she earned from lectures and the sales of her souvenir hatchet. <laughs> How fun would that be to have one? <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, always able to pay fines or make bail. She was said to have earned up to $300 a week. That's about nine grand a week today. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. <laughs> she didn't only loathe the liquor, she was opposed to fraternal orders. No masons. Nope. Uh, no tobacco. No smoking, guys. The foreign foods. No more takeout Chinese. <laughs> Corsets. Let it just hang. <laughs> Skirts of improper length. No ankle showing, ladies. <laughs> And the soft porn often found in bars. No ankle showing, damn it. We talked about this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, pretty much like a teenager, she hated everything. Mm -hmm. In our experience, it seems it's the miserable ones that last forever. However, old Carrie Nation ran out of steam on June 9th, 1911. She was 64 years old. She didn't even make it to see things swing her way. Too bad. <laughs> well, back to Prohibition. It was 1917. The U.S. had entered World War I, and a temporary wartime prohibition was put in place by President Woodrow Wilson in order to save grain for food production. Congress saw this as an opportunity to try out the Great Experiment <laughs> and submitted the 18th Amendment. It was originally given a seven-year time limit for the process. However, three-quarters of the U.S. provided the necessary support in only 11 months. Wow. By the time the amendment went into effect, 33 states had already put in place their own ban on the booze. Hmm. Um, enforcing the new laws brought its own challenges. There 
was, of course, a federal presence initiated to enforce the laws. However, this was initially delegated to the IRS, then eventually moved over to the Justice Department and Bureau of Prohibition. I suppose them tax folks weren't so inclined to go out on raids of speakeasy, so... They may be in those, that's why. <laughs> Perhaps. They don't want to be found in them. Yeah. Um, it seems the rules were more heavily enforced in areas where the masses were more sympathetic to the new law, which ended up being more rural areas and small towns. Mm -hmm. These were often tight church-type communities, so it would have been much easier to enforce the laws. Right. The urban areas were a bit of a different story. City folks still wanted their social gatherings, which had involved social drinking. Mm -hmm. It was a stipulation of the Volstead Act that states ought to enforce the experiment within their own borders. This put a strain on already tight budgets, bringing the need to beef up their law enforcement departments. Many governors were resentful of the strain and just used what they had available already. Maryland never drew up any enforcement code and gained the reputation of being one of the most stubbornly anti-prohibition states. Way to go. Good job. <laughs> New York dug what Maryland was doing and repealed their own measures in 1923. Other states grew tired of the seemingly fruitless efforts as well as time went on, often turning their backs to the offenders of the law. So this period of history brought out some ingenuity and creative enterprising skills throughout the country. We now have bootlegging, which would be the manufacture and sale of liquor. Bootleggers were also known to be the smugglers of hooch across the borders. There was a lot of brilliant methods implemented in this as well, from speedboats coming in from international waters to underground tunnels. Folks turned to making their own moonshine out in the hills or their barns to bathtub gin made right in the home. <laughs> this, of course, being illegal, brought a rise to criminal activity. Gangs were formed, territories established and fought over, warehouses turned into breweries and distilleries, bookstores into speakeasies, and average folks turned into millionaires. New York had over 30,000 speakeasies, and Detroit's liquor industry was second only to the auto industry. Wow. Cops were paid off, government officials were bought, murder and mayhem ensued. We see the stories in everything from the Dukes of Hazard to the libraries written about Al Capone. Though many makers of various spirits simply had to shut down, others were able to find new uses for their factories. Yingling and Anheuser-Busch both got creative and started to make ice cream, while Coors focused on making pottery and ceramics. A number of breweries were making near beer to keep their doors open. A bulk of brewers were making and pushing a very creative alternative called malt syrup. Basically, it was an extract with most everything you'd need to make beer. Add some water, some yeast, let it sit and ferment. Voila, you've got beer. Yay! <laughs> Winemakers were putting out something similar, selling chunks of grape concentrate called wine bricks. I imagine the same process. You add some water and yeast and you get wine. Yeah, pretty creative. I like it. Um, I think the malt syrup and wine bricks would have been a great way to go. Mm -hmm. Definitely something that I would have purchased because <laughs> if you look into how to make liquor, it's pretty complicated. <laughs> right. Um, and it was certainly safer to purchase those. Undoubtedly. <laughs> Millions of gallons of rock that were made and sold by bootleggers. 
It typically tasted like shit, and if that didn't deter you, the risk of going blind or poisoned should have. Yeah. Uh, thousands of folks died just trying to get a buzz on. More than 10,000 actually died from it. So a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Some of the cocktails used industrial alcohol, stuff made for use in fuels and medical applications. A government mandate was imposed to denature the industrial alcohol to make it undrinkable back in 1906, yet it didn't stop some folks. During Prohibition, the denaturing process now needed to include additives like quinine, methyl alcohol, and other toxins to further deter the use in adult beverages. So there were a few exceptions included in the Volstead Act that proved to be interesting loopholes. You could get sacramental wine for religious purposes, which brought an increase in rabbis and priests. And probably a lot more people going to church. Likely so. (laughs) So drugstores were able to sell medicinal whiskey. You just needed a prescription for anything like a toothache and could now get a pint of liquor every 10 days. That's 16 ounces in a pint, if y'all don't know. (laughs) So a number of speakeasies operated under the disguise of a drugstore, and other drugstores operated speakeasies. Prohibition historian Daniel O'Krant noted that the well-known drugstore chain Walgreens grew from about 20 locations to more than 500 during the 20s. That's a lot. (laughs) Yep. Uh, Bootlegging liquor may have been cheap to make, however, it was not cheap to get. The cost of smuggling, making, bribing, ammunition, and hitmen had to be incorporated into the end product. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. The average working folks were having a hard time justifying a drink as the decade waned on. Though the cost of enforcement, correctional facilities, and holding tanks continued to rise, support for prohibition was waning with the average folks' ability to buy a drink. Temperance movements were also losing their more moderate supporters at the end of the 20s neared as well. So in the fall of 1929, the nation was hit square in the jaw by the Great Depression. By 1932, it was realized how many jobs could be created as well as how much revenue would return by bringing back the booze. Pretty smart. Mm-hmm. Franklin D. Roosevelt was running for president at this time and included such philosophy in his plan, calling for the repeal of Prohibition. That may have been the only thing he really needed to run on to secure his victory. Mm-hmm. Either way, he made win, and as he came into office, he got to work wetting his palate for a dirty martini. In February of 1933, Congress adopted a resolution proposing a 21st Amendment to the Constitution that would officially repeal the 18th. In December of 1933, the state of Utah supplied the 36th and final necessary vote to ratify the amendment. Yay! Not all states immediately dropped prohibition. Some held on to it up until 1966. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. So, did the noble experiment keep folks from drinking? Nope. <laughs> it did, however, reduce drinking by a peak of 70% during prohibition, And after it was all said and done, there was a 30% decrease in alcohol consumption for the years afterwards. Perhaps 30% of the population died during Prohibition? I think there's a chance of that. (laughs) With the gun wars and... Territory war, and we've got bad bathtub gin killing people, making them go blind. Yep. 
Well, that day in December of 1933, of which Utah submitted this final vote, was the 5th. That, my friends, is what spurred us into giving you this brief history. We invite you to join us this evening in celebration of the repeal of Prohibition. Much of the information referenced here was found on the History Channel. Celebrate safely and responsibly. We'll be celebrating in Utah with a champagne toast at 9 p.m. If you so wish to share the energy with us, perhaps we'll be able to get a couple party pictures up on Instagram. Should be yeah. fun. Yeah, if you wish to see them, you can find us at Rebel at Large. We can be found on the World Wide Web at rebelatlarge.com. You can find links to the other social media or send us an email to tell us how you celebrated the repeal of Prohibition. I know we'd love to see it. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for joining us, folks. Safe travels. We'll see y'all down the road. Cheers. <laughs> Scared Marley. <laughs> <laughs>